Welcome to Spark, Careers in Agribusiness, where we meet the most accomplished leaders in agribusiness today. Learn how each of the women and men featured has built leadership into their life's work and what advice they have for young people just beginning their careers. Your host for Spark is Sarah Stever, president at Paulson. Today we'll meet Mary Shellman, who has recently added the title of entrepreneur to her amazing list of credentials. Mary is a thought leader in the global food and agribusiness sector, thoroughly understanding the agribusiness supply chain and how it works from farm to fork. Before founding the Mary Shellman Group, Mary was the director of agribusiness at Harvard. She served on several prestigious boards and has worked with the CEOs of firms such as Nestle, Arilla, Bungie, Fonterra, Olam, and Yum China. She is a popular keynote speaker and has taught and presented in over 17 countries. Mary has stayed true to her roots and still owns a farm in her home state of Kentucky. Mary has a bachelor's in chemical engineering with high distinction from the University of Kentucky and an MBA with distinction from Harvard Business School. Mary, why don't we begin with you telling us a little bit about your early years. I grew up in a smaller town in Kentucky, not a tiny town, but a smaller town in Kentucky. And my dad was a farm equipment dealer, and so I grew up going around with him to um, to visit farms and to work on equipment and to um, to do sales calls because I was a real daddy's girl, and my mom worked, so I liked to do that. And I was an only child, so that kind of added to that piece. But I never really thought about going into agribusiness as a career. I was an engineer by training, but somehow got steered into it by a class I took when I was in my MBA course at Harvard Business School. Interesting. So can you kind of reflect back on how your early life prepared you for the career you have? Uh, Sure. Like I said, I loved uh, going around with my dad and that universe ended up with being a lot of small family farms. It was, uh, again, I grew up in the middle part of Kentucky, which is a, was a very diversified farming part of the state. It wasn't to the um, to the east of Kentucky. You're in horse country and those beautiful thoroughbred farms that you see the pictures of. And in the western Kentucky, you're actually in the delta of the, of the, the Mississippi River, which is very big row crop farms. But um, my area which is kind of south of Louisville and north of Nashville, was kind of rolling hills. And so farms typically weren't huge. Tobacco was a very important cash crop, and so we had some farmers that grew crops, and um, we had some small dairies, and we had uh, uh, maybe a broiler operation, an egg-laying operation. And going around to those areas and then working at that farm equipment dealership in the summers, I really got to see a lot of uh, different things. The other piece that I got to see was the small business business side of it. The idea that, you know, it's small businesses, it seems they're kind of the, you know, the the bread and butter of our economy, but they can be very difficult. So I remember the 1970s, and in the 1970s, you had very, very high interest rates. And in the ag economy, you had the embargo of soybeans to export to Russia, which just collapsed the whole farming sector. And I know, looking back, that my dad had a really tough time, um, you know, staying in business during those interest rates, you know, 17, 18, 19%, 20%, you know, farmers couldn't buy anything. And then, of course, in the 1980s, after I was away from home, the exposures, you know, the losses of, of farms because of the high debt levels, and that hit the area around, too, and the very nature of farming changed. So I think that exposure of you know, to so many great people in the industry, um, people that I still see today when I go back, I still have a farm there. 
Um, it's, you know, wonderful. I gave a talk at a conference a year ago, January, to the Kentucky Commodity Conference, and somebody came up to me afterwards and says, you know, your dad sold my grandpa his first no-till corn planter in 1962. Wow. And you realize, you know, wow, how long my dad had been working on technologies like that. So so those are, again, that great background of it. And the second piece of it that was, you know, really probably equally as important is that my dad and my mom as well never saw that there was anything that I couldn't do. They had extremely high expectations for me. Neither of them had been to college. It was, uh, and my dad probably hadn't finished high school. My mom had graduated high school, but had worked ever since then. They, they just had this expectation that what you did is that, you know, you went to, to high school and you went to college. They had no idea what that actually meant. Um, so they might not have been as supportive in terms of guidance. And that's, direction, but the opening door or the um, expectation piece of it, this is something you will do, and that there were never any gender roles. So as a girl, you know, know, my dad never said, you can't do this because you're a girl. You know, I tagged along with him. So I never grew up that there were any uh, gender expectations around that. I think my mom was always disappointed. She wanted me to be a school teacher, that to her, or a music teacher, that to her was like, you know, the greatest thing. Probably I disappointed her on that piece of it. But um, the other piece that about going out and being able to travel the world and, you know, talk to interesting people and look at interesting places, um, they would never say, oh, I think you should be closer to home. So your your parents, both the experience that they had, you know, going kind of going through the trauma of the late 70s and early 80s, which happened to a lot of kids, I think, growing up on a farm, that and just kind of what they expected from you really shaped you going forward. Was there any particular either situation or something profound um, from either one of them or someone else that kind of guided your next step? There were a few bits along the way. My parents, both sides of the family, had, had been in Kentucky for generations, generations and generations and generations. Going back to the late 1700s or early 1800s, they both sides had been farm families, but on both sides probably too poor to ever actually own land themselves. So there were no family farms that were passed down. But my relatives, you know, my aunts and uncles were, you know, they were firemen and they were postmen and they were, um, you know, worked in civil service jobs because we were very close to, to Fort Knox or, you know, they worked with their hands. Seeing that, you know, one was very important to realize, you know, that, that, that people, those are, are very important roles. And the second piece is there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, again, of guidance that any of them could give. The way I ended up being an engineer, which was my, what my undergraduate degree was, is I was sitting in a high school physics class, and the boy that sat in front of me, who, um, who actually was from a, a military family, so he'd moved around a lot, and kind of had a bigger view of the world, turned around to me one day in physics class and said, you know, Mary, I'm going to be an engineer, and you're really good at math and science, and I think you should be an engineer, too. And that just kind of triggered something in me that said, well, that's an interesting you know, kind of next mountain to climb. I was always curious about things. When I looked at it, I realized I didn't just want to be an engineer. I liked 
this uh, role. So I like the guy that came around and called on my dad in his farm equipment dealership and represented the, you know, the major line that my dad sold. And I thought he had the neatest job because he got to go around in his car and drive and visit people, you know, somebody different every day and spend his time talking to them. So I decided that I would be an engineer, but I'd like to do industrial sales. So that trigger of, you know, the my classmate turning around in, you know, high school physics class set me on the first path. The second um, trigger was when I went to Harvard to, to the business school and during the second year of that course, I decided to take this agribusiness class just because I thought I knew something about it and it was very unusual, first very unusual to have an agribusiness class at a business school, especially a business school like Harvard. So I found myself there in the second, um, the first day of class in the second year, and I met the professor whose name is Ray Goldberg. And I learned that um, not only did Ray teach this agribusiness class, he actually started the field of agribusiness that he had um, been on member of the faculty there since the, the late 1940s. And in the 1950s, late 1950s, wrote a book called The Concept of Agribusiness, which was really the first time that talked about agriculture as a business idea and um, connecting what was happening on the farm to what was happening throughout what we today we would describe as a supply chain but it was much more fragmented at the time. And the idea that applying modern business practices, modern economic practices would be very relevant and could bring a great advance into that sector. I really, really liked this class that Ray taught. It was based on the case method. That meant every day you went in and you did a new case study. And these cases were all over the world. I remember one was written in 1947, and it was about egg pricing and um, had the classic line, which comes came first, the chicken or the egg. <laughs> um, but it might be that. It was cases about policy. It was cases about different companies in the supply chain, um, different places in the world. And um, I really enjoyed all of that. So at the end of that class, Ray asked me to stay for a year and work for him at the business school and to write cases on agribusiness companies. And these cases were used in a, a course for executives that ran every year. During that year with Ray, I was able to, to go again, to go around the world. That's really where my first serious travel started. I went to Australia. I went to Italy. I went to um, to London. I think I went to Paris. I wrote a case on the farm credit system, uh, Cenex Harvest States, farmland, a co-op at the time, ConAgra, and just lots and lots of contact and love that universe. So those were, were two kind of random, you might say random inputs that really determined my career. Did you look to Ray as kind of a uh, a mentor, or was he just a really outstanding professor for you? I think Ray was an outstanding professor. What Ray did is if he trusted you and if he liked your ideas, he lo just let you go. And so I had this great freedom to he kind of put me onto something, onto an idea, and then would let me to go out and explore it. Um, in terms of a, having a mentor, I did have one, a very important one, and that actually came next. I spent this year working for Ray. Um, one of the companies I wrote a case on was a big farming company in Texas, and the idea was is that they were taking land that had formerly uh, been used to, for cattle, and it, they were changing it into rice land. I went 
down there for a year to do strategy and business development. And the CEO that I worked with, his name was Robin Andrews, uh, he was British, and he was also a chemical engineer, so we had a really strong connection that way. But he was very quite senior in his career. He had come to run this farming company after having a very successful um, corporate career. So he had a lot of um, insights into, you know, planning processes and how strategy works, much bigger than a normal farming company head would have. And he had a vision that it would, you know, would, you know, develop a different kind of strategy for this. And uh, Robin was great because he really encouraged me to do anything that I wanted to, really. So if there was a presentation to the board, he didn't have to take credit. He would let me do that. He didn't have to take credit for it. If we were talking to potential partners, I got to to, uh, to lead those conversations. And Robin stayed as a mentor to me for, um, for years after that. I stayed at um, Barbs of Texas for a year, ended up going back to, to Harvard to work on a Ph.D., which I ended up not finishing because I pulled, got pulled back into this rice industry. And at that point, we had taken the land, this big farming operation, kind of pulled it apart into two pieces, and it had been a partnership. And so one partner took all the land virtually, and the second partner took what we called the technology assets of the firm, which was a big breeding program um, to develop um, new kinds of rice seed and a small research farm and also a packaged rice marketing operation. So I went back to that. Um, after kind of stepping out of the Ph.D. program and spent 10 years there as chairman of the board working very closely with Robin, with the CEO, um, to develop the strategies and the financial plans, the operational plans, the human resources plans for that company. Wow, what an amazing trip. So did you ever end up going back and finishing your Ph.D.? No, I, I, that one's still lingering out there as the, as the one thing that I walked away from. It wasn't a great fit for me. It turns out that at least the Ph program, PhD program that I was in here was all about um, getting the data and you know coming up with a, a theory or a hypothesis and then having the data to prove it. And what I found is I really like looking forward. I'm not so patient at looking backwards. So every time when I would come in with a research idea, my thesis advisors would say, well, where's the data? And I'm like, well, it doesn't exist yet because this is what I think is going to happen. And then it's kind of a unfinished chapter in the story. Sounds like what you did must have been a lot more appealing to you and more <laughs> fascinating to actually see that the businesses grow than the rice business. Right. So, and it was great because then I was able to come back. So really what I wanted to do with that PhD was what I've been doing for the last 11 years, which was working so closely with this agribusiness program at Harvard Business School. The real core of that program is a senior executive course runs every year. Um, people from all over the world come. Many of them come back every year. And instead of being like a typical executive education course put on by a, a business school or university, which is all about like, you know, we're going to teach you strategy, or we're going to teach you marketing, or we're going to teach you about corporate governance, this course is all about industry trends. And so every year there's an entirely new body of case material that's put together for it. And what interested me back as I started that PhD program, just as I'm still interested today, is how the world is changing. What are the trends? What are the driving forces of change? And what are companies doing in responding to those changes? You know, I ended up doing what I wanted to do probably in a in a better way than if I had gone the more traditional academic route, which would have put you on a tenure path. And um, I'm sure that um, I have great respect for 
college professors, university professors that go down that tenure path and get it. But it's one that I don't have any regrets for not having gone down that path. Sounds like what you did really has fed what appears to be a love for learning anyway, just in hearing you talk about what you did and always looking forward. To me, that says that right. you're really a learner. And that really right. kind of no, I'm, learning. I'm ter- tremendously curious. I always want to see what's over the next hill, um, next mountain. And so I think that's it. So that learning, if I could say, you know, kind of one message out there, it's always, you know, be open to those learning opportunities. In the beginning, when you were kind of looking forward with what you thought you might do with your life, did you ever expect that you would end up where you did? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no way. I think um, people you know, say, oh, you should, you know, do something you have a passion for, you should have an eye on your career plan. And for me, given the environment that I came out of, that would have been so limiting. And I read a book uh, a number of years back now, and it was talk, it was written by a, she was a professor at, at Harvard at the time. And she said, you know, that the fallacy of those kind of approaches, it it suggests that you know what the you know all the all the choices that are out there, and how can you? So how can you know if you like something until you've tried it? How can you know what's out there if you've never seen it before? So so no, absolutely not. I you know I was always just curious to see what the next thing was and what interesting uh, opportunities could be in front of me as opposed to uh, climbing a you know a, maybe more so than climbing a corporate ladder that wasn't as appealing to me. But as you say, it was about the learning and it was about, you know, having these new experiences. I would imagine that's probably one of the pieces of advice you would give um, young women starting out in their career. But but what would be some other pieces of advice? Definitely to look for those opportunities where you can learn. To me, that's almost more important than the position or the company. Um, It's more important who you work for, the individual, and whether that person will provide those learning opportunities for you. But you also have to seek them out yourself. Um, so that's one piece. The second thing is to, to be curious, to ask questions. Don't just sit back and say, you know, I don't know how to do that. And I think that the other piece is is that be willing to take on things you don't know how to do. This is a common gender different that man or male presented with an opportunity doesn't know how to do it, says, oh, yeah, I'll do that, and then figures it out. A woman says, oh, I don't know how to do that. Maybe I should wait and figure it out first. And I've learned you have to grab it. Unfortunately, it's a very uncomfortable position. It pulls you out of your comfort zone. I don't like to be out of my comfort zone. I really like to be in control. So that's an ongoing tension in my life is, you know, you don't want to be too comfortable, but yet you would like to be somewhat comfortable, right, so you can enjoy the journey along the way. I think it's important to be uncomfortable at certain times. The other thing that I would strongly suggest now, given how global our world is, is if there's an opportunity to spend some time outside of the United States or outside of a home country. I didn't have that in a in a big way, but I'd say it, it doesn't just have to be outside of your home country. It can even be out of your home state or your home city. I had a chance in, when I was in college to spend a summer in Washington, D.C., and that completely opened my eyes to these opportunities, these careers as part of the, the world that I had never thought about before, and then also the group of people that you're with really helps to continue to open your eyes. 
same way about coming to to Harvard to the business school. It's not so much about what you learn, but it's about who you meet and what that network is beyond that. That is great advice to build that powerful network because that'll really serve you into the future, I think, no matter where you go. Have you ever been a formal mentor for anyone? Well, if there's, you know, if a form comes in the mail and say, do you have to check the box, you know, are you matched up with someone? I've had that a couple of times I've been matched with someone, and I must say that in both cases, I found that to be a very disappointing experience. And maybe it wasn't a good match. Maybe the young women that I was matched with actually had great opportunities on their own and really didn't need my input or my guidance. But I've been, I would say, an informal mentor a number of times to both women and to men at different stages in their career. I think it's it's really important to find someone. Maybe coach is a, a different way that I would look at it as mentor. That someone that I'm from Kentucky, so we like basketball, right? So mm-hmm. you know, coaching is a better better idea. But you know, coaching in the sense of you know being also being a cheerleader, also saying, hey, I think you can do this. You know, here's somebody you should contact good friend um, that I've worked with for several years now in Ireland. She worked inside an organization called the Irish Food Board or Board BIA, and she was running a very large division, and there was a – but she wanted to be a CEO. And so there was an opportunity that came up. It was advertised and, you know, helping her to go through that process, you know, of prepping her for it to convince her. And fortunately, she, um, you know, she, she very deservedly – um, got the job, and now to see her grow in this new position is so satisfying. I think, you know, mentors or coaches play a very important role in our careers. They don't have to be formally matched up, though. I think it's more a personality thing, you know, someone that you can ask, you feel comfortable asking, someone you feel comfortable getting advice from. Well said. I think I, whenever I've been in a position where even it's just a peer-to-peer um mentorship. It's always, I always feel like I'm on the learning end of every one of those experiences that right. I had. So you're about to venture out and do a new a new chapter in your book. What are you most concerned about kind of in your sphere of influence looking forward? You know, so I could give you the big picture um, answer of that. You know, I'm concerned about our ability as a world to feed, you know, nine and a half plus billion people in 2050 and to do so in a sustainable way and one that, that, you know, provides, you know, nutritious food and the right type of access. But, you know, that's a very big picture piece of it. I think personally, if I've had one soapbox over the last 10 or 11 years, it's been about the importance of human capital, the importance of talent in firms. I believe that we can solve these very significant problems, significant challenges if we have the, the right people to do that and inside that right organization. Kind of more immediately, if there's one thing that I could influence, it would be companies um, at all levels from, you know, the, the, the very big to the smaller ones and, um, you know, even local companies to really widen their net. And I'm talking here about diversity and diversity by, um, you know, having um, more women in important roles young roles and important roles and and moving on up, Um, but not just about women, about other um, ethnic groups, about other age groups, about other, you know, levels of diversity there. I know lots of companies have programs in this space, but I believe that change actually has to happen at the top to start. It has to happen in the boardroom because if not, you're just kind of giving it lip service. It never really sinks in. I've had the opportunity 
during my career to walk down lots of hallways and headquarters and office buildings, you know, all over the world. And typically you walk down past that pictures of the board of directors. For the most part, they look all the same. That's where that diversity needs to start is in that boardroom. And then we can be serious about getting and keeping and developing the right talent on down in the organization. So for these young women that are just getting started out, how do you suggest that they navigate that world? Well, I think one piece of it is to, you know, to take a look at that boardroom um, to see, because there are companies out there that are making changes and are very committed to this space. So that's one one way to do it. The second thing, I think, is not to maybe think too much about the gender issues. I was very fortunate, like I said, when I was growing up, I never felt that I was different because I was a girl. It's not until now, you know, much later in my career that you know, taking a little more active voice around it. I was very fortunate. I was never in a situation that I felt like that an opportunity wasn't open to me because I was, you know, female instead of a male. Um, and maybe because of that, I just blew through things. <laughs> if you don't know that it exists, right, it's not a load, it's not a speed bump if you don't slow down for it. It's just kind of like, you know, oh, wow, what was that, right? <laughs> so... So I'm a little, I'm kind of pragmatic in that sense that if you, you know, be the best you are and do a good job and just uh, keep, you know, pushing and asking for opportunities, you can, can get through this. I think you and I probably had a really similar background because my my dad was the same way. He never took note of, he just, you know, come on out here, you're going to help me pull pigs today. And it didn't matter who it was. Right. It was the kid that was handy and capable. Right. That's his, right. His expectations were just, well, you, of course yeah. you're going to be able to do it. Why wouldn't right. You? And it's interesting because I think it's, it's actually so it's going to change. We're going to see a significant change in this now as we get some generational changes. Because, um, for instance, I think of my son, he's 24. And so he's never grown up in an environment that says that there's really a difference between, you know, boys and girls. If anything, the girls in his class all the way growing up were much more, you know, in some ways talented. You know, they were quicker learners. They were always had their hands up. So I see him and his you know, his career now, his job now, you know, he doesn't think a thing of it all about whether he has a, works for, a, you know, a male manager or a female manager. So hopefully it's something that's going to go away over time as we become blind to that, more blind to that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I guess a goal that I've always thought about for my kids is that they wouldn't even consider it. Why would I even think about that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Why would yeah. I think about it? Is there um, anything that I missed that you think would be uh, a question that young people would have out there that you've got an awesome answer for and I just haven't asked you it? Yeah. One of the things that I'm a big champion of is, well, first of all, education, um, clearly, given that I've had you know, great opportunities. But I also think that in terms of education, you don't have to start at the top. So I'm a big proponent of our community college system. I spent the first two years of my undergraduate degree in the community college in my hometown. One of the proudest moments I've had is being invited to go back and to address one of the, the graduating classes. And it's an amazing feeling to set out and look, and there's all different age levels and different career paths. Some of the graduates were going on to, you know, finish, a, you know, a bachelor's degree at a different institution. And some were just, you know, were getting certificates or associate's degrees, but all of them clearly were better positioned 
to be in control of their career than before they came in. So to me, um, particularly in, you know, areas of the country to where college is in a central part, so I live in Boston now, and, you know, colleges here are like churches. There's one on every corner. Um, and there's expectations from birth. You know, you're positioning your child, which, you know, which college you're going to go to. But to me, the community college system is one that's um, a very um, important part of our academic system. And I think that some people now are, you know, there's a perception that it's like a lesser a lesser thing to do. And, you know, you look at my career, kind of my academic path and what I've accomplished, other than the fact I didn't finish my PhD from Harvard, so you could say I didn't, you know, take it to the end. But, you know, I started out, I have an associate's degree from a community college that, you know, was a first step to a bachelor's degree and then, you know, an MBA and on up the path. So that's the maybe one piece that I would put out there to encourage, you know, young people not to, especially to be very practical in terms of, you know, the financial commitment it takes to go to university someplace, um, to, you know, take under lots and lots of debt and end up with something that you could have had much more reasonably, maybe more of a value proposition on it in a different way. That is wonderful, wonderful advice, because I think there is so much pressure on kids coming out of high school to get into the right school and whether or not their grades are going to carry them and what kind of debt are they going to end up with at the end and are they going to end up in a career where that's even even makes sense on paper to, right. to go down that path. Right. Um, and just to, to have someone <laughs> say you can start anywhere, that's great, great advice. Final question for you, Mary, is when you have stepped aside from your career, what is one thing that you hope people will remember you for? That's really a tough one. Because, as you said, I could never have imagined when I sat back, you know, maybe graduating from high school, you know, what was possible to accomplish. I'm very proud of my contributions to being a, a champion of, of this human capital piece of it. I think the conversations around the importance of talent in organizations and developing talent in organizations are different today than they were 10 years ago, and I'm very proud to be a part of that. And to the second piece of that, is to be an inspiration. You know, the idea that you can, you know, grow up in a small town in Kentucky and make it and end up doing something in the world that is not only personally satisfying, but, you know, gives you a the ability to influence other lives. I love programs like FFA. Um, I wish that, so I went to a city school, so I, we didn't have FFA, but looking back now, if there were one thing I would love to be more involved in, I think, you know, programs like FFA, like 4-H, uh, um, NAMA, organizations like this to where you can have a leadership role as a high school student, as a college student, you get these wonderful opportunities to grow and to develop some skills, you know, things to put on your resume, but also to test things out to find out what you like and you don't like. In being able to inspire someone, whether they're from Kentucky or maybe from another rural community or, or any place, any place in the world. You know, I have a very global network now. I had an email yesterday from someone in Nigeria saying, oh, I met you at a program a couple of years ago. You know, I left to read. And, you know, you're talking about the things that are so important for us in Africa right now, which is about human capital. It's about, you know, investing in, in this talent development. So that's that's really what I'd like to be remembered for. Hopefully, though, we don't have to remember me for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you're just starting out this next chapter, so you've got lots in front of you. 
Exactly. Uh, so I hope you, that's the case. <laughs> what do you hope to accomplish with, with this next venture that you're on? Um, you know, I'm still looking for the right thing. Um, the program that I worked with at Harvard was fantastic, but um, it really was in some respect, um, it was almost like a cycle that we do a year's worth of cases, we'd run that, and then we're on to the next year's of cases. So there was constant learning, but really not a lot of time to reflect and to apply those learnings. So what my hope is, is to be able to now have some more time to reflect and to apply. I see that at least in my head as a combination of different things. I hope to continue to do some some speaking um, at at meetings and sharing this story, some teaching. I just came back from um, a short course I did in Ireland to um, to master students, but also to to work with companies and to figure out how they can position themselves best in response to these trends and to actually lead some of these global trends that we're on. So really connecting the dots. That's what I like to do. I like to connect the dots. I've seen lots of different industries, lots of different geographies, lots of different um, opportunities, lots of challenges, and to bring that in at a, you know, a company level, whether it's a, you know, more established company looking to grow, or if it's even kind of the, the idea of a company. I really like working with um, some startups in the under the ag and food space. I like the ones that go across the chain that are trying to, you know, they're really connecting farm to fork. So I'm still talking to lots and lots of people, and um, I've heard some interesting company stories and things, so looking for that right mix. That's Spark for today. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in for the next episode. To learn more about Paulson, please visit paulson.ag. That's P-A-U-L-S-E-N dot A-G.